Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Wonderful to be in here. My blessing is, uh, again, just to be with you here this morning, all these amazing people. It really is a special thing to be with people who love the Word of God as I was looking out today, watching you all walk in. Just so thanking the Lord for a group of people like this who truly love God's Word, uh, love being at church, and so thank you. We're going to dive into the amazing book of Jude today, and we're not going to get very far, but, uh, but we are going to get very far. Most Christians know about the book of Jude. They're just not sure what it's about. <laughs> like, oh yeah, I've heard about that book. Uh, they passed through that book on their way to its big brother, Revelations, you know. And uh, so it's Jude, then Revelation. That's where we're going. The only 25 verses, a very small book, but so filled with powerful truth. And so we're going to get there in just a minute. But let me start with this. There's an organization called Probe Ministries. They did a survey back in 2020, which included about 3,000 Americans between the age, ages of 18 and 55. In the survey, they revealed that born-again Protestants experienced the greatest level of decline in Bible-based beliefs from 2010 to 2020, 10-year period. During that decade, the percentage of people who agreed with the core Christian doctrines fell from 47% to 25%. Now, among Americans, so these are people who will label themselves as born-again Christians. But then when they ask specific questions about actual core Christian doctrines, they, they don't line up. They, those that say they're born-again Christians between the ages of 18 and 39, more than 60% of those say that Jesus, Buddha, and Muhammad all taught valid ways to God. That's 60% of born-again, people who call themselves born-again Christians. Now, more than 30% of those say that Jesus sinned while he was living here on earth, or they're not sure if he did or not. But really, to add to the confusion, if you ask the question, another question a little differently, they also asked, you know, is Jesus the only way to a true relationship with God? And 60% of them said yes. <laughs> so they're completely confused. Um, so there are many ways to God, but there's only one way to God, according to the majority. They just really don't know what in the world is going on. But it's no wonder, because I read a, another survey just this past week, a brand new one by George Barna. And this was a, a survey of America, America's Christian pastors. And this grieved me a lot. It showed that a majority of Christian pastors do not have a biblical worldview. In fact, it says that just slightly more than a third, that is 37%, hold a biblical worldview. The majority, 62%, hold a hybrid worldview. And the, the, uh, Barna and his group, they called it syncretism, just a kind of a mishmash of beliefs that they've kind of put together in their own minds. And that was senior pastors, so 62% hold a hybrid worldview. Associate pastors, youth pastors, children's pastors were even worse as far as the percentages go. 
The survey looked at eight different categories when they asked the question to the pastors. They, do you have a biblical worldview on family and the value of life, God, creation, and history, personal faith practices, sin, salvation, and then relationship with God? So they asked uh, questions in those categories, and the survey found that the category with the lowest percentage of pastors holding a biblical worldview, this is surprising to me, is the one that was really related to beliefs and behaviors about the Bible, about truth, about morality. Here's the point with all this, and you already know this, but I, I wanted to just wake us up and help us realize that this, it is what we're suspecting, but, and that is that we have a truth problem. We have a truth problem, not just in the world, but in the churches, unfortunately. And once you leave the foundational doctrines of the word of God, then all you have is just another social club that meets on a Sunday. And this is why it's so important for us to defend against doctrinal error and immorality in the church, in our homes, and in our personal lives. Jude is a fighting book. (laughs) It is a fighting book. Now, what's interesting about the book of Jews, and we're going to see that in just a minute, is he didn't plan for it to be that way at the beginning when he sat down to write. But he saw a problem in the churches in his day, and the Lord used him to light a fire under God's people to get them to fight for truth, fight for the faith. That was his number one theme here. Now, the economy of words in the book of Jude is amazing. It is very short, but has lots of deep, meaningful doctrine and Old Testament references that take time to really unpack and go through. So we're going to take a few weeks to go through this little book, but I think we're all going to be very impressed and amazed at what God is showing us and how we'll be amazed how well it fits to where we are today. So let's jump into verse 1, Jude verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. All right, so number one, who is this letter from? Tells us right at the beginning it's from Jude. Who is Jude? Well, he explains himself as the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Jude, the name Jude, is the same name as Judas in Greek. But uh, our English translators uh, changed it for obvious reasons. Nobody wants to be associated with Judas. Uh, But Judas was a common name back then. But the only person in the New Testament, there are several Judases, but the only person in the New Testament named Jude or Judas that was also a brother of James is the person that we find in Mark chapter 6, verse 3. Let's look at that verse. Is not this the carpenter? Now we're talking about Jesus here. Is not this the carpenter, that is Jesus, the son of Mary? Listen to this now, the brother of James and Joseph and Judah or Jude, Judas, that's the same name, and Simon, and are are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. And we pick up that verse kind of in the middle of a a story, but we discover here that Jude and James were both half-brothers of Jesus. 
And so it's also interesting just to think about that. I mean, they were half-brothers of Jesus. Of course, Mary, Jesus came from uh, God implanting Jesus in the womb of Mary. But Mary and Joseph had several, several other children. In fact, we know at least from this verse, they had at least six other children. Four boys and at least two girls, because it says sisters. So we know they had at least six other children beside Jesus. Well, this verse also tells us that Jesus' neighbors, he was talking about, were offended at Jesus, were offended at him, or in other words, they stumbled at Jesus. They couldn't accept that Jesus was Messiah, that he was God in the flesh. He's just a guy that we knew growing up in Nazareth. He, he can't be the Messiah. And from Mark chapter 3, we don't have it here, but we, we know that Jesus' friends and family thought that Jesus was, quote, beside himself. In other words, he's crazy. <laughs> Jesus is crazy. And uh, that's what Jude seemed, that's what it seems very obvious that Jude and his brother James and his siblings thought about Jesus. He's crazy. We grew up with him in the home and we always knew he was special, but come on, the Messiah, God in the flesh, come on. So it appears at one time Jude was not a believer in his half-brother. But notice in the book of Jude what it says, back in verse one there. Jude very carefully calls himself a servant or a bondservant, a slave of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Christ means Messiah. He believed he was the Messiah. He now sees himself, Jude, as the willing slave of his half-brother. But what changed? What changed in Jude? Well, no doubt it was probably the same as it, as it was for James, who also wrote the book of James. And that was the resurrection. The resurrection changed everything. My half-brother walked out of the tomb. <laughs> okay, all right, I give up. I see it now. And now it's all coming together. And in Acts, we see this beautiful verse. Jesus' family, his half-brothers, all with, uh, it, with each other, with their mom. Acts chapter 1, verse 14, in the upper room praying. Here it is. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. All oh, Jesus' family came to, came to see that he was no doubt the living God. So the brothers of Jesus were there. It includes Jude, James, again, the writer of the book of James, and also a great leader in the early church. So, but, but when you look at Jude's opening, Jude, the, uh, the servant of Jesus Christ, the brother of James, he, he gives us just an understanding of Jude's humility. He didn't use his family privilege to boast or claim some position. I'm the brother of Jesus. Everybody look at me. By the way, if I was related to Jesus, all of you would already know about it. But let me tell you, <laughs> if I could track my line, I guarantee. But, but Jude didn't see himself that way. Jude saw himself as a slave of Jesus, a bondservant of Jesus, a willing slave of the, of the Messiah. And who is this letter to? Well, he says it's to believers. Now, this was a letter that was copied and passed along to lots of different churches. But look at the beautiful way that God chose to use Jude to describe believers. Three words or three terms here, sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. That's what a believer is. Sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Jesus Christ, and called. I was four years old when I asked Jesus to come into my heart. 
Uh, I remember being on my bed there and dad coming in and us talking about it. But I had a four-year-old, very limited knowledge (laughs) of what being saved meant. I I had very little understanding. Mostly it was just, don't go to hell. (laughs) I don't want to go to hell. About 11 or 12 years old then, many more of the truths that had been taught as I was going through, you know, life began to come together, these biblical truths in my mind. And I realized I need to make sure, I need to make sure that I have Jesus in my heart. I was four years old, I don't know if I understood it, and so I went into my mom's room one night and said, Mom, I don't know if I'm saved. And I was, you know, emotional about this. And mom said, well then, let's ask him, make sure. And I hadn't even thought about that. Okay, yeah, great idea. So fearful. That's wonderful. Let's make sure. And we prayed together. And we marked a little card. And I signed it. I still have that little card. I, but even at 12 years old, you know that I still didn't really understand all there is to know about salvation or all there is to know about Jesus or how, what all this meant. Still, I wasn't quite sure. There was just a spiritual drawing that the Lord had done. And now at 42 years old, guess what? I really still don't understand (laughs) all that salvation means, all that it is, all that Jesus has done. I'm still getting blown away as I read the scripture and I learn things about this salvation that Christ gives to people. It was probably similar for you, I bet. Whether you were saved as a child or as an adult, when we accept Jesus as our savior, you know, we're just grateful to have our sins forgiven or we're grateful that we're not going to hell or whatever. But the more and more we read, more we grow, more we come to classes, more we sit under good preaching, read our Bibles, we just get more and more blown away with how deep and how wide this salvation is. We we begin to learn words like these here that Jude writes out for us. Sanctified. Sanctified. This means that we have been set apart by God. Set apart set apart from the world and set apart to the Lord. We're set apart from the world, we're cleansed to then serve God. And it was, it's, the, this term, um, sanctified, was used in the Old Testament for the vessels in the house of God or the temple, the tabernacle. You're like a vessel that has been set apart to be used for God's purpose. Lots of people back in the Old Testament days had candlesticks in their homes, lots of them. They had bowls, but there was only one candlestick that was set apart for God's house. It was a very special candlestick. It was sanctified. And that's like us. When we're saved, we are set apart. We're different than every, every other person. We are special. We are set apart to do a work for God. We're cleansed. We're purified by the blood so that now we have a purpose in our life that's bigger than anything we had before. Sanctification purifies us. It sets us apart for his service. And by the way, there's an instantaneous sanctification and then there's also a progressive sanctification. Meaning in one sense, I'm completely sanctified and cleansed and set apart the moment I accept Jesus. But there's another sense in which he cleans me uh, over time. I get more and more and more cleansed. I ought to be more like Jesus the older I get than less like Jesus. I ought to be more like Jesus as the days go on. We're sanctified. And then he uses the word preserved in Jesus Christ. What a special term this is. I love this. Preserved, that word means kept. Kept. We have a keeping God. 
He keeps people. He keeps us in Christ, it says. You are preserved in Jesus Christ. We don't keep ourselves. He keeps us. There is no separating me from Jesus Christ because he's keeping me. And nobody can pluck me out of his hand. When you accept Jesus as your savior, it's an eternal thing. You're forever preserved in Jesus Christ. That's important to know as we're gonna be talking through this book of Jude here, and we talk about apostates, who, people who leave the faith. But the point is they were never born again to begin with. Amen. And then lastly, he uses this word called here. In theology, this is the doctrine of vocation, it's called. The act of grace by which God invites men to accept him by faith. If the accept by faith the salvation that is offered by Jesus Christ. The act of grace by which God invites men to accept by faith the salvation provided by Christ. The call is, goes out to all. Through God's word, it goes out. Through the Holy Spirit, it goes out. Through his servants, through people who are out preaching and giving the good news, the call goes out. Like Jonah. Jonah went into Nineveh and gave the call to all. And he invited everyone to repent. And they did. And if you're saved this morning, that means you heard the call of God and you answered the call. The Lord worked in you. The phone, you, you heard the phone ring and you picked up. It was God calling and saying, come to me and be saved. And you said, you got it, I'm coming. Now it's interesting to me that Jude puts this at the end of the list. Paul, when he was writing about this, he kind of put this at the beginning of the list of uh, the details about our uh, salvation. But I was thinking, why would Jude put it at the end? Maybe, maybe it's a reminder for us to think about our calling even after our salvation from time to time. Think about this. God, the creator of the universe, the creator of all things, called me to be saved. Don't ever think, don't ever think that you don't belong in the family of God. He called you. If you're a part of God's family, he called you. God called you personally. He called you to be a part of this family. He thought about you. He cares for you. We could spend a long time on talking about just these wonderful doctrines right here, but we must continue. Jude, he says, you're sanctified. You're preserved in Jesus Christ. You're called. That's who I'm writing to, those people right there. And then Jude gives a typical Christian greeting in the early church, verse two. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Oh, that's beautiful. Mercy unto you, peace and love be multiplied. As I mentioned in just a moment, he's gonna call all these precious loving saints to be fighters. But before that, he reminds them that his desire is to see multiplied mercy and multiplied peace and multiplied love so that the fight in this life doesn't overtake us and doesn't discourage us. We need this sense of mercy and peace and love in our hearts and in, and in our churches. Yes, Christians are called to be tough fighters. You're, you and I are called to be tough. Amen. But we also need to keep our eyes on the beauty of Christ and the beauty of his word as we soldier on. And I think about that. May that sweet spirit of Christ always be in this place. You know, my, my, I was thinking about it. My wife is a good example of this. She's full of mercy. She's full of peace, full of love. But if the devil ever tries to feed her children some lies about the Bible or God, 
I almost start to feel sorry for the demons. You know, they're about to get it. They are in trouble. You know, that's, that's, we are fighters. But they're also just to be this sense of mercy and peace and love. That should be the, the definition of our lives. It should be, there should be that sweet aroma of roses in the church that everyone enjoys, but the thorns are come, come out when the devil tries to grab us. We see this, and we see that next. Jude, here, he gets right to the purpose of the letter. Verse three. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. He says, you know, I, I gave all diligence. I really tried hard to sit and write a letter about the common salvation, meaning the salvation that we all have in common. That's what I wanted to do. <laughs> And I so identified with this. Wouldn't this be sweet if every Sunday we just gathered here, we came, and we only talked about the, how wonderful it is to be saved. That's it. We, that's the only thing we talked about. If we always just rejoiced in Jesus, just discussed all of that, it would just be nice. I would prefer that. And we should do it, by the way. When can we start? <laughs> but unfortunately, we're not in the sweet by and by yet, and and we're in the ugly here and now, as some have said. <laughs> and as Jude, he saw clearly, he says, you know, I see there is a need. It's needful for me. I, that's what I wanted to write. I sat down diligently to do that. But I see a need to exhort or to beg Christians to be more than just worshipers, but to be fighters. He says we need to earnestly contend. Now, earnestly contend, this phrase is a Greek athletic word. It's the Greek word epagonizomai. If you look in the middle there, it's where we get our word agonize. It's to struggle offensively and struggle intensely. Now I've been meditating on this word as I knew we were going to be going through this passage and last week uh, Brother Matt did a good job teaching, but I've been thinking about this for two weeks, this phrase, earnestly contend for the faith. God is calling all of us to earnestly contend, earnestly contend. And we're gonna talk about that phrase, but I would just, that, just that alone, rolling that phrase over and over in my mind for the past two weeks has been such a, a good thing for me. I encourage everybody to do that this week. Lord, you've called me to earnestly contend for the faith. What does that look like in my life? What does that mean for me? What do I, what do, I do with that? But Paul used this almost the exact same word when he talked to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.12. Paul said this, he said, fight the good fight of faith. Now to fight there, the word fight means agonizomai, or is Greek word agonizomai. When Jude writes, if you'll remember, he adds another level of intensity. It's the only time in the New Testament this, this form of the word is used, epagonizomai. It's like a coach saying, I know you've been fighting hard, but now it's the fourth quarter, and your contender is coming on strong. So it's time to leave it all on the court. Ep agonizomai. Yes, uh, you've been fighting, but now is the time to increase more than you ever have. This is what God is asking of believers. It's not a half-hearted, come to church for an hour, sit Sit there and then forget about Jesus the rest of the week. Where is the zeal? Where is the agony? Where is the effort? 
we are the ones, believers, Judah's saying, I, I found it needful to say to you to earnestly contend for the faith. To you, you and me, we are the ones who stand between where we are now and gospel extinction. We, between where we are now and all that hybrid thinking where we add all kinds of things onto the faith and onto the truth. It's you and me to earnestly contend for the faith. This is not the person next to you. It's for you. It's for me. I was thinking about this in relation to a conversation I had with a local pastor recently. We were having lunch, and one of the things he brought up to me, one of the things he said to me, it was very memorable. He said, you know, people want a pastor with some fight in him. <laughs> they want him to be kind, of course, to them, but they want him to be a spiritual fighter. Of course, sometimes that turns toward them and they get a little, uh, a little scared, but but they want their pastor to have some fight in them. You know, the Psalm 23 says uh, about the shepherd, the great shepherd, thy rod and thy staff, they what? Comfort me. You want a shepherd that carries a rod and carries a staff. You want a, you want a shepherd with some fight in him, even if he has to use his rod on the sheep sometimes. But a pastor like ours, amen, we aren't closing down church. Amen. That's, that was his decision for us as a, as, as a church. And and Jude says, though, it's not just the pastor. It's all of you. It should be true for all of us. And he's not asking us to fight over little theological squabbles or the color of the carpet or what type of music we're, we're, we're talking about. And really, as I think about these kinds of things, now where we are in our time in history and in our culture, there is no time for this among churches. They're really, we, we, we really right now have to just say we are earnestly contending for the faith which was once delivered to the saints and all of us this is what it's about and when when we say that now earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints the faith this is not he's not talking about our personal faith this is not whatever you believe in and whatever i believe in this is not as we mentioned earlier syncretism a mixture of beliefs that I've organized together in my mind. This is not that. This is the faith. Earnestly contend for the faith. The fundamentals, the fundamental truths of the Christian faith contained in the scriptures and taught by the apostles. These are the core Christian doctrines like Jesus is God. Man is a sinner and in need of salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. Etc. It is that body of truth by which we are saved and that we live godly lives. That's the, the faith. We may have differences on the minors or differences on the mechanics of how some of this works, but we're talking about the majors of Scripture that are so core to who we are. And that's what we have to earnestly contend for and watch out for. Listen to this great reminder from Charles Spurgeon. I love this. He said this, upon other matters, there are distinctions among believers, but yet there is a common salvation enjoyed by the Arminian as well as the Calvinist, possessed by the Presbyterian as well as by the Episcopalian, prized by the Quaker as well as by the Baptist. Those who are in Christ are more near of kin than they know of, and their intense unity and deep, essential truth is a greater force than most of them imagine. Only give it scope, and it will work wonders. And this is 
a very important phrase that Jude uses here. This faith was once delivered to the saints. And that's what we're talking about. This one body of truth that was once delivered or once for all delivered to the saints. In other words, there's no more scripture being written today. The same truth Paul and Peter and Jude had was the same one that we have. What they preached in the church should be the same thing that we preach. It's not fluid, it's not flexible, we can't change it because of our cultural context. You know, they want us to believe this, and so, okay, we'll bend on this. It can't be bent. <laughs> in fact, no one, no, none of us has the right to change it, to suit our whims or uh, whatever people are trying to get us to do. Uh, in Romans chapter one, it talks about suppressing the truth in unrighteousness, and that's what the world does. They, they feel the truth, but they suppress it. And there is such a wave of uh, influence from the outside trying to, make, trying to get the church to suppress the truth and not to say it. But this is an exciting thought, the fact that this was once delivered to the saints. It was once given to the saints. We hold in our hand the final body of truth that God wanted us to have for life and godliness. It is unchanging that means you, and it, and it has been delivered, it says, or the word entrusted. It's been entrusted to the saints. That means it's been entrusted to us as born-again believers. Again, another statement here I think is so powerful, this one by Charles Swindoll. He said, it, it wasn't given for the world to criticize, for historians to evaluate, for philosophers to deconstruct, or for entertainers to lampoon. God intended every believer to understand the faith, to study it, and to live it. Not only the theologian and the pastor, but also a little child who places simple trust in Christ. That is the faith that is once delivered to the saints. And now Jude is saying it's our duty to give our earnest effort in fighting for it and contending for it. How does a saint fight for truth? How do we do that? Well, practically, certainly by witnessing boldly, distributing tracts, giving our tithes and offerings for furtherance of the gospel and training missionaries and sending missionaries and, and pastors, but also withholding support from false teachers Amen. and also living uncompromising lives for the glory of God. I like what, but I also like what one pastor said, and this resonated in a way that I can think about. We not only fight for the truth, but we fight with the truth. Amen. We simply use the truth in every situation of life. We hold it up in every situation. And by doing that, we're contending for the truth. If someone holds up an error, we hold up the truth. If someone tries to twist the truth, we hold up the real truth. If someone tries to marginalize truth, we hold up the truth. In every situation, we just keep gently, lovingly, faithfully, with a smile on our face, holding up the blessed truth. And by doing that, we are contending for the truth. We've got to be careful with our attitude. I uh, heard about Ray Comfort out there, you know, doing some street preaching, and he was talking about the one time he got beat up. He's out there preaching, and he said it was his own fault because he broke his, one of his own rules. A lady was coming out, she was just foul mouth, foul mouth, foul mouth. And he said, ma'am, could you please stop those words? There's ladies present. And she said, she said, well, I am a lady. And he said, ma'am, you might be a woman, but you're not a lady. And he, he said, she came out after me like a bat out of heaven and 
tackled me and started wailing on me. She, he said she was Mike Tyson's little sister. <laughs> and they had to pull her off, and he had lumps and bruises. But he said, that was my own fault. I should not have said it that way. That was the wrong thing to say. So be careful how we say things. We're, we're not out there trying to, trying to make enemies, but we are going to continue to hold up the truth. Earnestly contend. Don't be earnestly contentious. <laughs> But why now? Why does Jude say this? Why, what was the need that Jude was seeing for this kind of talk? Earnestly contend. Verse 4. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Ungodly men, turning the grace of God, our God, into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Jude was very well aware that there was a very real threat that had crept into some of the church circles. There were certain men. And this is not a surprise because these men were before of old ordained to this condemnation. Meaning, in other words, they were prophesied about, they were told about from a long time ago from old. The Old Testament talked about them. We're missing it up there? Okay, that's all right. The Old Testament talked about these men, and so did Jesus. So did Peter, so did Paul. They kept warning, false teachers were coming, false teachers were coming, these people are coming. And it's no surprise now when Jude says they're here. They're crept in unawares. The, the old word for these kind of people that people have used for a long time in church circles is apostates. An apostate is not a true believer, it's someone who is not, you know, who really truly believed in Christ and then abandoned his salvation. No, it's a person who has professed to accept the truth and I trust the Savior, but then they turn from the faith that was once delivered to the saints. You'll see them in bookstores signing their newest book, Bashing Biblical Morality. You'll see them in churches presenting their new understanding of biblical doctrine. You'll see them on social media flaunting their newfound freedom from biblical and patriarchal restraints. That's where you'll see them. And Jude gives four characteristics here of the apostates in his day. Let me give them to you quickly. Number one is deception. He says they creep in unaware. They crept in unawares. Such a descriptive term. They lodged stealthily. They settled in alongside. They're like, uh, they're like an outlaw who slips back into a country which he was expelled from, William Barclay says. It's like, a, it's like somebody who's bringing in a slow innovation and a, and a new th way of thinking in a, into a society to undermine uh, everything in that society. And let me just remind us as a church that there will be people who creep in unawares in the home church at times. Uh, creepers, we might call them. <laughs> they will settle in. They will talk like Christians. They will sing like Christians. They will quote verses like Christians. Probably better than most Christians. Even the pastor, they might sound much better. But the day is coming when they will draw a net and maybe they'll invite you to something. They'll invite you over to their house to talk about the word or whatever or have you over for dinner. Charles Spurgeon said, Satan knows right well that one devil in the church can do far more than a thousand devils outside her bounds. Amen. We all have to be on guard. We all have to be very careful that we understand and know the, the faith that was once delivered to the saints. And Jude says, number two, they're ungodly. <laughs> Jude really likes this word. He uses it a lot in this little letter. The bottom line, it just means they are ungodlike. Jude says, watch how they live. Is it like God or is it not like God? 
You watch apostates long enough and you'll see that they don't have a genuine honor and a healthy reverence for God and his holiness and for honoring God. The third thing Jude says is they, they are manipulators of grace. They turn the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now he was probably talking about the Gnostics there, but they have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. We might take a few minutes next week to unpack this a little more, but they, in other words, they have taken the grace of God and turned it into a license to go wild and do whatever they want. Lasciviousness is unbridled lust, gross immorality. It covers all kinds of sensuality and sexual permissiveness. And they turned the grace of God into that. God gave me grace. He forgave all my sins, and now I can do whatever I want. That's not grace. That's the turning of grace into lasciviousness. That's a turning of grace. Uh, we'll talk about that more. First, and then number four, he says, they deny the lordship of Christ. And if you're filling out the blanks there, that's what it is. Denying the lordship of Christ. Denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ, he says. See, these apostates might accept that Jesus was a wonderful man or he was a wonderful prophet. He was an enlightened man or he had a God-like spirit in him, but he wasn't God. So I don't have to treat Jesus like Lord and Master if he's not God. I don't need to surrender and obey and give all my life to him if he's not God. Bad doctrine leads to bad living. Actually, I was asking myself, what comes first for most people? Is it casting off moral constraint or is it casting off doctrinal truth first and then going to immorality? Which one comes first? And again, uh, Chuck Swindoll had a good statement on this. The rejection of moral standards always affects fidelity to doctrinal truth. And departure from doctrinal standards always leads to lax morality. And I've, I've observed this to be true as I started thinking about it. It doesn't matter which one comes first. <laughs> the one always leads to the other. If you have bad doctrine first, you're gonna have bad immorality. You have bad immorality first, you're, it's gonna lead to bad doctrine. It just goes both ways, I think. And this is why it's so important that we are vigilant on both fronts, doctrinal and moral. So we hold fast to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered to the saints because it's so important on both fronts. Lord, we trust you today. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.